Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the 361st episode of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. We're broadcasting in this eighth year across the world from our studio on Hollywood Boulevard in West Hollywood in California. Now, I'm constantly approached by startups and early stage companies, and uh, they all really have one thing in common. They all need money. (laughs) And the second thing they have in common is that their pitches are usually pretty ordinary. And many of these pitches are full of statements that are real red flags for investors. The investors that I know hear and read hundreds of startup pitches and there are statements and claims that immediately get them to switch off and throw the pitch in the bin. So here are some of those red flags. The first red flag is not disclosing all the facts on management experience and skills. This is one of the most important parts of a pitch that most entrepreneurs don't realise. Investors expect to hear about prior experience and detailed knowledge in the space being pitched. They don't want to hear about your cousin or your uncle or your sister who happens to be on your board of advisors because they're family. Secondly, do not accentuate offerings that have free solutions to customers. People do it all the time. We've got this fabulous free solution and we'll make money somewhere else. Customers love free, but investors hate free. You know, think about Facebook, the original king of free. They spent over $100 million just to kickstart their company. The third red flag is to emphasize social commitment, but not profit. So if you're all about doing good for the community, pitch to philanthropists. Forget about the equity investors. They're not going to cop it. Companies like Patagonia and Zappos, who focus on social issues, Their pitches are all about their financial return. The fourth red flag is a real common one. The use of overused terms like, this business is a paradigm shift, or we've got fantastic new disruptive technology. Jesus. Fundamental changes in technology frighten away more investors than attract, and they take longer. There's a whole bunch more problems and they cost more money to come to fruition than they're worth. Fifth, do not suggest astronomical sales numbers because sizing a startup market greater than the GDP of many countries just isn't credible. It suggests that you've got overall poor business acumen. The sixth red flag is to present sales projections, you know, saying that we've got less than 1% market penetration, but that's all we'll need because there's so many people in the world that's going to be massive. God, 
entrepreneurs in this category are usually dreamers. So investors don't like to give them money. Seven, many entrepreneurs claim they've either got absolutely no competition or there's hundreds of competitors. Investors don't like either. Neither claim is credible. So when you put together your pitch, focus on the top three competitors. The eighth red flag is to denigrate your competitors. A lot of people do this. Highlight your positives in competitive positioning, but don't highlight the competitor negatives. You know, bad vibes, bad business. Another very common mistake made by entrepreneurs looking for money is suggesting that you have a first mover advantage and this is somehow a primary barrier to entry for a competitor. Trust me, if the competitor's got big money, they can reproduce the two years of work you put in in a weekend. They can have it on the market next Monday. So first primary um, first mover advantage is absolutely no use to you whatsoever. Red flag number 10, that's to suggest gross margins less than 50%. You know, many naive founders believe they can make profits with low margins. We're going to have so many people that we don't need a big margin. That's rubbish. As you grow, you need more employees, you need benefits and facilities and taxes and complex processes and a whole bunch of other stuff. So the investors assume that even if you survive, returns are going to be miserable. Red flag number 10 is to declare that you've got a 10 million valuation with no revenue or customers. I see it all the time. We've um, calculated our investment percentage for the uh, investor based on a valuation of $5.6 million. How'd you get that? Yeah, you know, the company's worth absolutely, if it hasn't got any customers, hasn't got any revenue, is it worth absolutely bloody nothing? Now, the average valuation for angel investors is about 2.5 million. Anything higher than that, people are going to go, eh, eh, not going to cop it. Red flag number 12, never suggest annual revenue projections exceeding $100 million before the fifth year. I've seen loads and loads of projections that say, you know, in our third year, we'll get $385 million revenue. Think about this. In the fifth year, Google only achieved $85 million. So you're going to do four times better than Google? No. So don't do it. And the final red flag for investors is to use the term conservative. This is a very conservative estimate. Investors are not looking for conservative. They expect aggressive projections, not crazy, but aggressive. Entrepreneurs with conservative mindsets usually fail. So you only get one chance for a great first impression with investors, so don't let any of these red flags fuck up your chances of getting money. Your credibility is paramount. Don't jeopardise it with too much hype and passion. Your future probably depends on it. Now, do you get my daily 30-second read business newsletter? We've got about 1.75 million daily subscribers. It just takes 30 seconds 
to read. And every day we tackle a different subject. We talk about medicine and new apps and new technology and Hyperloop and autonomous cars and blockchain and on and on and on. Today's newsletter discusses the new development in stem cell technology. This is an incredible new development and it takes a thin skin cell from any person, totally erases its life history as a skin cell and returns it as almost an embryonic stem cell. It is amazing and this can become new heart muscle or brain nerves or insulin pumping pancreatic cells. It's really cool stuff that will change medicine as we know it. But if you didn't get today's newsletter, you don't know any of that. So to keep abreast of all the new developments in business and technology, you must get the Bob Pritchard newsletter. Just go to my website, bobpritchard.com, and enrol. Did you see this week that Scrabble enthusiasts now have 300 new words added to their Scrabble dictionary? The latest edition, which was released on Monday, added long-awaited words like OK and EW. Ooh, what sort of a bloody word is EW? OK is apparently a word Scrabble players have been waiting for for a long time. People tell me that two and three-letter words are the lifeblood of Scrabble. I don't know. It's been four years since the last time new words were added to the game and uh, the measures to approve new words for this edition were taken very seriously. Not that you'd know it when you hear some of the words. Here's some of them. Beat down. An overwhelming defeat. I mean, what sort of word is that? Bestie. She's my bestie. What the hell word is that? Bizjet. Well, that's a small airplane used for business, but is it a word? E-W, ew, it's used to express disgust, another stupid word. Frowny, that's when you frown. You're giving a frowny. Bloody hell, who comes up with this stuff? Twerk. <laughs> well, this is to dance by shaking the buttocks while squatting. Really, you just can't make this shit up. Fair income. <laughs> God. Now, the big news in retail is that Amazon's planning another big disruption by introducing 3,000 cashierless stores in the next couple of years. Now, this is going to threaten convenience change like 7-Eleven as well as the likes of Subway and Panera Bowl, pizzerias and even taco trucks. Bezos sees this as the best way for Amazon to reinvent the brick-and-mortar shopping experience, where, of course, despite all the stuff about online sales, 85% of or thereabouts of all shopping is still done in bricks and mortar. So um, the format of Bezos's stores, it's a convenience store that sells fresh prepared foods as well as a limited grocery selection, or it's just a place to simply pick up a quick bite to eat for people in a rush. So it's really easy. Shoppers use a smartphone app to enter the store. Once they scan their phone at a turnstile, they just take whatever they want off the shelves and then walk out without stopping at a cash register. No lines, in and out, really fast. Sensors and computer, computer vision technology detect what you take and it bills you automatically. 
it really is bloody smart. So adding 3,000 convenience stores will make Amazon go among the biggest chains in the US and opening multiple locations in proximity like it's doing in Seattle could also help them reduce costs by centralising food production in one kitchen, which then serves many stores. Amazon, of course, is targeting dense urban areas with lots of young, busy, affluent residents willing to spend a little more than a typical fast food experience. The target locations make it a threat to fast casual restaurants. Shoppers rate location and a lack of lines as the most important factors when shopping. Amazon Go has no lines, so if it puts them in the right spot, they have got a winner. Now, my guest after the break is Meg Mankey. She's great. She's a ranch kid from South Dakota. She's a senior partner at the Rose Group International, and she's a specialist at helping others realise their full potential, breaking down social and personal barriers, changing their story. Meg's a real fun person. We had a great interview, and I'm sure you'll enjoy the interview as much as I did doing it. So if you're standing up on your ranch, Meg, listening to this, I think you'll enjoy it. I hope so. This is Bob Pritchard broadcasting across the world this week from my base on Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, California, where entertainment meets technology. And I'll be back in just a minute. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show. You know, over the last seven years, a long time, doesn't seem like that long, we've been giving you insights into the lives of over 350 of the world's most interesting business people. We talk about what they do, the challenges that they've faced, and we try to work out behind all that what it is that actually makes them tick. It's extremely difficult to create a successful business today, as is evidenced by the fact that less than four businesses in (laughs) whoops, less than four businesses in every hundred succeed. So we all need to receive advice and assistance from those entrepreneurs who've achieved success. 
and also from those people who are providing us the advice needed to become successful. So that's really the sole aim of this segment, to provide you with the tools to assist you to become successful. Simple, right? <laughs> My guest today is Meg Mankey, who is the senior partner at Rose Group International. And Meg is a culture and leadership expert. Now, I've been in marketing for about, I don't know, 50 years or something. And I'm not quite sure what a culture and leadership expert is, but we'll find out in a second. Meg has years of experience in leading through transition. It's very hard. I've done a few transitions. Um, I was involved um, in several big transition and is really difficult. So from major changes in highly regulated industries to managing through a $100 million acquisition, Meg has refined skills in understanding people through change. Her studies in organisational psychology and mastery in leadership concepts ensures that your people are taken care of, which is good. I'm interested in the um, understanding people through change and moulding people. That, that's really interesting because I, I grew up with the philosophy that the only way to change people is to change people. Um, and uh, that's always stood me in good stead, so that should be interesting. Now, Meg has a passion for helping others to realise their full potential, breaking down social and personal barriers, changing their story, her innate ability to recognise opportunity in weakness and present a strategic solution is unprecedented in today's business world. She's a ranch kid from Western South Dakota, but uh, she still puts in a hard day's work on the family place. Ranch life, it's interesting because um, it's, it's really a huge dump. My wife is um, a farm girl grew up in a farm and uh, moving from a farm to the rigours of big business today is really quite a step. Her ranch gave her a stick-to-itiveness. I think it's a word that she's invented, stick-to-itiveness. I guess that means perseverance. Um, passion for family and outdoors, and maybe a touch of stubbornness. She's an avid runner, an advocate of well-rounded education of youth, and a major supporter of finding humour in all things. So this should be fun. Now she partnered with Dr. Rachel Headley at the Rose Group International. They developed a critical, new, and very practical IX leadership framework which allows you to actually solve problems in your team, address generational issues, guide people through big changes and accomplish your most ambitious goals. So that's Meg. I'm not sure what any of that means, but let's see if we can find out a bit more. Hi, Meg. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. You are being heard all around the world. Well, lucky world today and lucky me to be visiting with you, Bob. Thanks for having me. So are you sitting out there on a wood fence somewhere in a pair of galoshes and wading through mud or something? 
you know, I'm not today, but on Sunday we are going to go work cows on the family ranch. So uh, in not too many days, I will be out on the ranch. I have taken many conference calls on the back of a horse on a Saturday morning or a Friday morning. Okay, love it. Um, it's interesting because I uh, I grew up in Australia and I, I grew up in the city. I didn't grow up in the country. And then when I left Australia and started you know, 35 years ago or whatever it was, and started mixing in the real world of business um, across three or four continents. Um, it is a major difference, and you, you suddenly realise just how tough and dirty and whatever big business is. So how, how did you find stepping up from being a farm girl or a ranch girl to um, playing in the big pond and succeeding? You know, it's funny you should ask that. That was kind of the uh, impetus for me to really start working with Rachel and and writing the book on IX leadership. My first uh, lessons in in leadership and culture and how business works were, you know, out in the pasture. And I was, gosh, I think I was probably about five years old when my dad first sent me out on my horse by myself. Just really, I was a big deal. And uh, he said, okay, well, I'm going to go this way and you go that way and we'll, you know, bring all these cows in and uh, I'll meet you back at the, at the gate. Well, of course, I went out and thought I had been in that pasture 100,000 times and knew exactly where I was going. And I popped over a couple hills and then I felt very lost and very panicked. Um, and that was my first of many, many lessons on the ranch about, you know, accountability and, and vision. And so... I find that while there are some certain, uh, certainly some differences between the ranch and the business world um, and the concrete jungle, if you will, of being in a metropolis, uh, there's still a lot I learned from ranching and can apply today in business. So how did you actually come up with IX leadership and how does it, you know, there's a million leadership um, styles out there and how did, how did you come up with IX leadership and why is it different than any other style of leadership we see? Sure. Well, uh, the term IX stands for internal experience. Um, and my kids tell me that experience starts with an E, not an X. I'm well aware of that. Um, <laughs> my eight, nine-year-old wanted to make sure I knew. Um Anyway, Rachel and I had an opportunity to meet with quite a few people from the customer service, client service um, industry, mm-hmm. and they talk a lot about CS and CX, so customer service, customer experience. Yep. And they were saying, well, gosh, you know, we really focus a lot of our energy on making sure that our customers are satisfied with their experience. And we said, well, how satisfied are your employees with their experience? Because... You know, if your retention rates are really low and your productivity is really low and your employees are not engaged, chances are your customers are going to hear that in their voice. Yeah, and you're going to be in big so, problems. Right, right. So we developed IX leadership around the idea that you focus on the people within your organization, then they focus on uh, the people outside of your organization. Yeah. So that's how we came up with the term IX leadership. The thing that's different about IX leadership uh, is that it's not only theory. There's a lot of practical application uh, in the book that you hear and a leader can use. And it's not all focused on the individual leader um, and how they lead. It's really actually focused on how they interact with and understand their group. 
uh, not to be confused with servant leadership because it's not just about standing from behind and, and, you know, helping or pushing your people forward. Yeah. It's really about standing in line with your people. And, and how do you actually leverage the energy of each person uh, and how does that energy show up so that you can be them so every person on the team can be the most effective? Yeah, if, if you're not motivating your team and if you're not giving them the opportunity to be creative and show initiative and, and, and lead, and then you'll lose because if you, if you don't have a harmonious group and a good culture within, without is going to be a problem. But it's, it, it's interesting that you'll get, you know, going back to Apple, going back to the early days of Apple, um, Steve Jobs could get, his staff were like lemmings. If he had have come out and said, okay, today we're all going to jump into the Grand Canyon, they all would have come out and jumped into the Grand Canyon. And yet, they all thought he was a bastard. They all thought he was tough and he was unfair and he was a real bastard and yet they you know you go to a, an apple um event a launch or whatever this is going back 20 years i suppose um it was incredible the leadership that he um inspired and it's a bit like my, my son's a googler up in um silicon valley and you know google's their whole world i mean Irrespective of the management, they they're Googlers and they believe in it and they're passionate about it and they they do anything for the company. What is, what is, what sort of leadership is that? How does how does that leadership work? Yeah, well, I would say that that's uh, probably really close to IX leadership because um, you know it's not about it's not about giving everyone what they want or making everybody feel warm and fuzzy every day. Um, business is hard and there, there are big decisions to make and there, there are grinding days for everyone and there are days when the boss wants to come out and yell and I guess if you're Steve Jobs, maybe you're, you're afforded that opportunity to do so. But if you think back, if you ever played sports or watched a sports movie or anything about some really amazing coach, those coaches were bastards, to use your yeah. term. Uh, and those people love them. And I'll tell you exactly the reason. And this is why we focus so much on this uh, in IX leadership is those leaders are creating a legacy, not for themselves, for that whole group of people, for the whole team. And they are so great at helping their team understand what the values are and what the vision is to go, go forward, move forward, what success looks like. And they say it in words that those people can understand and they help each person somehow they help each person understand how they individually are making an impact within the organization. And that's why, that's why Googlers are Googlers, you know, to the bone. And that's why Applers love Steve Jobs. You know, I mean, look at Southwest Airlines. That's another great example. They, their employees are loyal. Uh, that's because they have something to be loyal to. They yeah. they want to be part of that legacy. And Kelleher was just such a different type of thinker too, and he inspired mm-hmm. inspired great loyalty from his from his staff and everybody really. And he gave them the freedom to show initiative, and they did. Yeah, and that was that's that's a great example. Um, a lot of attention um, when you hear a lot about the differences in various generations um, and how they like to work. 
is there are those, are those a lot of those uh, differences in their attitudes are they real or are they sort of manufactured? I mean, there's some of the um, traits or so-called traits of the younger generation really as different as, as they're made out to be? Mm-hmm. I love this question. Uh, my answer is uh, it's all manufactured. Yeah, now, I are they different in a lot of different ways than generations previous? Sure. They grew up with a phone in their hand. Uh, they learned how to type well before they were in, you know, whatever, fourth, fifth, sixth grade. Uh, they're, they're genius in a different way. They think about time in a different way. They think about geographic location in a different way because it's nothing now to hop on an airplane and fly across the world. So I think that, um, you know, the, the millennial generation, the nester generation, they're kind of getting pinned with this, uh, bad attitude, don't really care about anybody else. But in reality, we're all still humans and that's simply not true. I mean, we are a tribal being and we love security. And so while everybody might be walking around with their headphones on and listening to different playlists, uh, I don't think that, you know, millennials are, are not any harder to deal with. I, When someone asks me this, especially from an older generation, um, I say, well, you know, I mean, think about if you were in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. So you had, you know, pot smokers that didn't seem like they were ever doing their job or showing up to work. And then, you know, maybe you had some hairband following headbangers that maybe didn't show up to work or seem like they were doing their job. And, and then maybe you had people that were, you know, I don't know, doing drugs in the bathroom. And then, I mean, every generation has a thing that, you know, a reason that they they didn't show up, quote unquote, to work. So I think uh, there's an issue in every generation. And that's why, you know, the way we frame all of our work in IX leadership is to kind of level, be a level above all that. Who cares what everyone else's reasons are? Let's think about how we all work well together and keep moving forward with the main vision of the company. I could not agree with you more. And there's very few people that, that actually think that. And, you know, having spent a fair bit of time um, at Google, for example, um, the um, you couldn't find a more dedicated, initiative-driven group of young people. I, you know, you sit in the – I sit in the forum and wait for um, my son to come down and uh, – at five o'clock or six o'clock or seven o'clock, everybody looks like they're 12 years old. You know, they're all young and spotty and whatever, and they work their asses off. They obviously do a great job and they're 100% committed. So you're right, it comes down to the culture of the company and the, and the quality of leadership. Yeah, yeah, it's really about understanding your people and what their work preferences are. Now, of course, when you talk about that and then you know, you have some leaders that say, well, gosh, you know, I have the kind of business where my people actually have to show up and they have to work in the building or, you know, maybe they're in a trade, you know, or industrial field and, you know, people have to show up. And I get that. Uh, you can give them freedom in other ways, though. And so I think I think this whole uh, generational differences thing is, is a story that we all tell ourselves, whether your business is five people or 5,000 people, it's a story. It's just another excuse for why things don't work. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. There are a number of personality tests. Um, I, 
Meyer Briggs disc, colours, personality tests, etc. There's heaps of them. There seems to be new ones all the time. And you're introducing us to culture types. So how do culture types different from the personality tests that we've all done in the past many times? Yes. So the first and most, there are four, four different types. They're fixers, independents, stabilizers, and organizers. And the thing that's the major difference uh, between culture types and all other personality types is that it's nothing to do with your personality. So we actually crosswalked um, all of the major Carl Jung work. So Carl Jung... um, did a lot of work and that's what the Myers-Briggs and DISC and colors and all that is based on. And so we're standing on the shoulders of giants and saying, this is the next stage. We've done a great job for the last 20, 30 years in business to say, well, this is your personality type as a leader or as a, a person in an organization. And, but it just doesn't really do us that much good. And so we actually said, well, what difference does it make if you're an extrovert or introvert or if you're sensing or a high D or a red? It really doesn't matter, does it? I mean, as long as you're good at your job, how do you make sure that people are actually engaged in their work? And so we created these four culture types, which crosswalks people and uh, the the assessment shows how people um, prefer their work. So team-based all the way over to self or individual work. And then on order, how much order do you really prefer in your daily work life? You know, so it goes from... Uh, all the way to order up to chaos, or those of us who are fixers, like myself, call that freedom. <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, people who are stabilizers and organizers call that chaos. Right. So we we've really focused our work on uh, not so much the individual, but how does the team work together? And so if we all know what each other's culture types are, and then we all know how each person and each culture type processes change differently then we have a lot better chance of being innovative and moving forward with the same vision. So what are those four culture types again? Uh, The four culture types are fixer, independent, stabilizer, and organizer. Now, if you've got a a team, um, you've got a business where you run a series of teams, is there a balance of each of those you need to have or you know, what if, if you had all fixes, what happens? Does the whole thing fall apart? Well, how do you? Mm. Well, you know, the interesting thing that we found in our studies is that a lot of times it's based on your industry. So we do a lot of work in um, industrial or manufacturing uh, uh, vertical. Yeah. And a lot of times in manufacturing, what we'll see is that as they promote people through the ranks, um, those people are stabilizers because they were hired to do one job every day, I stamp this piece of metal or make sure this machine stamps the piece of metal or I, you know, wrap this widget or whatever the thing is. And so a lot of times we see that there's a lot of stabilizers in the manufacturing world. Um, You know, other nonprofits, you might have a lot of fixers or some independents. Um, We just typed a group that was uh, a lot of fixers. And so the real magic of it is not so much that you can't be effective if you have, you know, more of, more of one than another or that you have to be well-rounded. The magic is that you all know what each person pre- prefers and how they work best. And so it doesn't, it, it really, um, the results are a bit agnostic in that it, it doesn't really matter 
um, what you have, you can work with it no matter what. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting because we keep trying to categorize. We'll put people in groups that we have over a period of time. I remember um, many years ago, uh, the whole thing was about NLP. You had to have the right balance of visual people and auditory people and kinesthetic people and everybody had to know what everybody else's um, type was so that you could communicate with them better and how – and. Um, is this just another extension of this, or is that, or is this much more um, nuanced? This is more nuanced, I would say, um, in that it's it's not about necessarily how it's not only about how people take in information, um, because we pair these culture types with uh, the Kurtz change transition model, and yeah. so we talk a lot about the opportunity for innovation where most people say change is hard. We talk about, you know, really that's an opportunity for innovation and it's one that's missed often uh, by organizations because they just get in the, you know, even from the leadership level, well, change is hard. It's going to be hard. Let's just put our head down, gut it out. Um, And so what we offer is a a solution to think about change differently. And so the, the full IX system, um, Recipe is what we call it in the book. So the full IX recipe altogether gives the, you know, I keep saying to people, it has some grit behind it. And so it gives an organization the, the grit or the, the something, the substance to hold on to, to say, okay, we all know that we're getting through this together um, and that there's different ways that we all process this. Uh, so it's way, it's it's much deeper than, um, simply, well, I, you know, I learn better if I if I hear you first. Yeah. Um, change is hard. Everybody you speak to in business says change is hard, but that's a, that's a um, that's an attitude thing. It's a fear, and so between fixers and stabilizers and independent and organizers, I would imagine that stabilizers and organizers are the most resistant to change and that fixes and independence are the most embracing of change. Would that be right? That would be right. You must have already snuck a copy of the book into your hot hand. I haven't, but I've been around <laughs> a long time. <laughs> um, yeah. So what do the culture types – what culture types – are most likely to be leaders? I just answered my own question, I think, a minute ago. But um, is there is there a culture type that 80% of leaders are or, or are they across the board? They're, they're across the board. There's a higher percentage of leaders that are fixers. Yeah. Um, independents. Depend, you know, on in start in the startup world, there's a, a pretty high percentage of independent. Um, so you, you know, we all know those startup uh, folks who have some big idea and they're, you know, they're gung ho about it and super independent. And uh, maybe Steve Jobs would be an example um, of an independent. So he's absolutely going to go for it, and somehow he and you know he manages to motivate people along the way, but. You know, he, he might be in a in a corner or in a garage, as it were, working on his own until the wee hours of the morning. So there are some independent leaders. Um, fixers are, are most often leaders. There are, though, we do find that there are stabilizers and organizers that show up as leaders. 
um, they, their approach is much different. Um, I think, uh, Particularly in big business, uh, we are used to seeing fixers um, and maybe independents as leaders. But I think, you know, if, if we had to cross-section the entire world's uh, set of leaders, there's probably several out there that are stabilizers and organizers as well. Right. I think, interestingly, most startups, 96% of startups, fail. And the reason that 96% of startups fail is because they're usually created by um, independents who have got a great idea and off they go, but they actually can't run a business because that's not the sort of personality they've got. And most um, startups fail not because the product isn't any good, but because they don't have the um, leadership and management ability to be able to pull it off. So... The independents then fall by the wayside and organisers and fixers come in and then maybe stabilisers way down the line somewhere? Yeah, yep. So fixers are going to grab it and run with it. They're the best ones to go to and say, we've got this new thing coming up, um, like you to spearhead it right. um, or be responsible for some part of it because they're going to they're going to throw all the paperwork you just gave them and not, you know, to, to the side and they're not going to read the email that you sent them. They're just going to say, tell me the three things that need to be done in the next 24 hours. Um, independence, uh, if, if you approach them correctly. So we call, there's a difference between um, unguided and guided change. So we'll assume that we're guiding the change well because we're all great leaders. Um, so, you know, it, it, with the independence, they say, oh, okay, well, this is great. And you'd say, hey, I've got this one project. Man, I just don't have time for it or I don't understand it or this is really in your wheelhouse. Can you manage this for me and give me some really creative solutions? Uh, organizers are really interested in the details. They really want to understand, you know, what's the order of things? How is this going to happen? Who's going to be impacted when? Uh, what's the final product or outcome look like? And what's the desire? Um, if that's guided well, they're pretty quick to turn. Um, uh, they're pretty quick to turn. We've got... Then, uh, sorry. Oh, sorry. And then, you know, we've got stabilizers. So you're, you're absolutely right. Stabilizers take the longest amount of time. And, and the magic, though, about stabilizers and flipping them through change is that uh, they're really interested in how what everyone else is doing and how it's impacting all of the other people around them. And, you know, they're looking around saying, so this is the example I use for stabilizers. You sit down at a conference. There's a piece of paper in front of each seat. And the paper's flipped over so it's blank on the side that's facing up. Sure. Well, you know dang well that there's something on the other side of that paper, but a stabilizer would never be the first one to flip the paper over. They're going to look around, and they're going to see if everybody else flips the paper over. And if everyone else does, then they will. And so same as, you know, in, in an organization, if there's change going on, they'll probably be the last ones to come along. But once you get that first 30% of your population going, whether that's two people in a small organization sure. or, you know, 2,000 people in a large organization, uh, then those stabilizers will hop right on board and they'll be ready to go. Is change, is resistance to change and the fear that goes with that, is that a result of somebody's inherent personality or is that a result of external pressures, worrying about their job, worrying about changes in the community. Um, there's all these new apps and I can't ke ke uh, 
keep up. I don't know how I'm going to cope. Um, is there a so is it inherent or is it just a fear of being unable to um, compete in this world as it is today? You know, I think there's, you know, in the information era, there's so much coming at us that there's a lot to be stressed out about. And so I would say that, you know, some of it is just people are really fearful of the unknown. And and there's so much information out there about how scary the unknown can be. Um, (laughs) Then it it actually compounds the issue rather than solving it. You know, they say don't ever look at for medical advice online because you'll you'll scare yourself to death and you're not even dying. Um, I I think you know. Yes, I think there might be some personal, uh, you know, historical conditioning that goes along with each person. But but what we really talk about in the change process is that. You know, the, 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 the idea of change, whether it's a big one or small one, um, it's the same every time. You know, you go through the decline, you let go of what used to be, then you go through innovation phase and work towards a new norm. Each of the culture types, though, processes that change differently, as we were just talking about. And so, you know, the real magic behind IX leadership is that um, the team learns together and the, leader, the leadership team learns how each person processes change depending on their culture type or how each group might. And so I think that it can be managed. I think that's the secret that really seems to be missing uh, for the business world. There, you know, it's like, oh, we, we just can't manage change. We just have to live through it. Well, no, not at all, actually. You can manage it and you can do it together and you can do it well. So what, what are the tools and techniques that leaders are lacking today? Um in order to um, successfully lead their team through change? Um, well, first of all, they don't have the IX recipe, which is coming out and going to hit the entire world very soon. So lucky for them, that's coming up. Um, what's in there, though, that makes a really big difference, I would say, is the, the culture types and the um, change transition model like we've been talking. But really, we the third section of the book talks a lot about what we call IX uh, basics, so it's basic leadership principles, but we've added some kind of uh, we've added some tactical and practical tools in there, and kind of some you know let's not let's let's get through the bullshit you know of whatever business is saying today and say you you have to stop being scared, you have to trust your team, you have to engage in transparency, you have to believe in what you're doing. Make sure accountability is very, very clear in your organization. Uh, you know, get off your heels and change your story. We we call excuses your story. So yeah. d- don't just sit back and say, oh, gosh, this is how it is. No, nope, just change your story. It doesn't matter where you're at in an organization. doesn't matter if it's large, small. Uh, everyone has an opportunity to be better, make their lives better, make their career better, and make, make more opportunities for them and the people around them. And so... That I think is the real, uh, the real key to what leaders are missing today. But it, it's, um, I think it's really interesting. I, I, it's it's a new approach for me, and I'm really looking forward to reading the book. Seriously, I I am because we have a hell of a lot of entrepreneurs and and people in startup companies listening to this program around the world, and. Uh, if you if you're an entrepreneur and you're a, um, an independent, and you know that to succeed you need to now bring on organisers or fixers, um, 
initially, then I think that would be an enormous help to you when you're out there looking for the next stage. If you're in a big company, I've been involved in a couple of major um, mergers and it is a nightmare. And because we approached it in a totally different way, and then obviously it was a while ago, but um, I think this makes a hell of a lot of sense. So when does, when does the book come out? How do you get it? Yes, absolutely. So the book launches uh, 19 October of this year, 2018. And uh, you can get it on on that day, um, perhaps a little bit before. We're just working on the last little wiggles of the um, Amazon post. So you, But for sure, by 19 October, you'll be able to find the book um, on Amazon. Um, and then you can either... We haven't got the audio version uh, done yet, but uh, we do have the book available. Yeah, yeah. But we do have the, the book available. Uh, we'll be out on October 19th. Well, I will certainly be one getting it because I think it's a, a fantastic way to approach it. I've been through several iterations of, of leadership and and uh, categorizing people in inside teams, etc. And this, this one makes a hell of a lot of sense to me. Meg, I could talk to you for ages. This is really an interesting subject. So thank you very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now, if you'd like to find out more about Meg Mankey, go to Rose Group International, I-N-T-L.com. That's Rose, R-O-S-E, Group, G-R-O-U-P-I-N-T-L.com. And you can connect with Meg directly at Meg underscore Mankey on Twitter and also on LinkedIn. So Meg, thanks very, very much. I really appreciate it. It's a great subject. And I'd love to um, you let me know how the book goes when it when it's released. And I, I think that um, I'd like to talk to you again um, after release All because I think right. it's a, I think it's terrific. It's a great idea. And I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show and Voice America Business Network right after this short break. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking, absolutely no bullshit business radio show. We're on Voice America Business Network and we're broadcasting today from where entertainment and technology intersect, Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, California. Are you living a healthy, happy life? Harvard followed 800 people for their entire lives to see what actually makes them live happier, healthier and longer. The overall study found six key factors that impact happiness and longevity, and they included relationships, education, and generosity. The study of adult development is a rarity in medicine because it sets out to study the whole life of the well, not just the sick, and it integrated three groups of men and women, all have been studied continuously 
for up to 80 years. So that's a really interesting study. And with almost a century of data on 1,000 people, there are plenty of insight. Here are the six big ones that can get you on your path to awesomeness. One, avoid smoking and alcohol. Not being a heavy smoker before the age of 50 is the most important single predictive factor of healthy physical aging. And drinking too much doesn't only hurt your health. Over the long haul, it makes you less happy and screws up all your relationships. So the study reveals that alcohol abuse is a cause rather than a result of increased life stress, of depression, and of downward social mobility. Alcohol abuse consistently predicted unsuccessful ageing. So don't drink or smoke a lot. The study also found that pursuing more education lived to, led to better habits and healthier lives. Irrespective of upbringing, parity of education alone was enough to produce parity in physical health. This wasn't due to family income. It wasn't due to IQ. Pursuing more education led to better habits and healthier lives. The more education people obtained, the more likely they were to stop smoking, eat sensibly and use alcohol in moderation. Number three, a healthy childhood. The study found that what goes right in childhood predicts the future far better than what goes wrong. One of the best indicators of successful ageing was how well people had adapted in junior high school. Successful adolescents predicted successful old age. If you had a bleak childhood, well, that did not condemn you to misery, but it helps to be happy. So when people found a loving spouse or trusted friends, the damage of a tough childhood could be undone. For women as well as for men, spouses could sometimes heal dysfunctional childhood. Number four, relationships are everything. Plenty of the men and women who had smarts and family wealth didn't fare well, and many who had fewer advantages did fine. It was people's ability to deal with others that made the biggest difference. Successful ageing means giving to others joyously whenever one is able, receiving from others gratefully when one needs it, and being greedy enough to develop one's own self in between. Number five, coping skills. How well you cope with the inevitable problems of life has far-reaching long-term consequences. So if you blame others and you're passive-aggressive and you live in denial, acting out and retreating into fantasies, they're maladaptive coping mechanisms associated with very poor outcomes. And the last one, generative generativity, depending on the opportunities that society makes available, generativity can mean serving as a consultant, a guide, a mentor, a coach to young adults. And research reveals that between the ages of 30 and 45, our need for achievement declines and our need for community and affiliation increases. So the best way to selfishly improve your life is to be unselfish and fo focus on helping those around you. So they're the six. So the ability to make lemonade from lemons, avoid cigarettes, modest use of alcohol, regular exercise, high education, and maintaining normal weight. 
will lead you to a pretty happy, healthy life. Now, remember, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. It's easier and it's much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. Any bastard can do the ordinary. It's easy. It's doing the impossible that's hard. And if you're always trying to be normal, you'll always be boring. You'll never know how amazing you can be if you're not. So I hope you're going to join me again next Tuesday when I'll again be broadcasting from Hollywood, California. And in the meanwhile, continue to be successful because the alternative to success really sucks. This is Bob Pritchard. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.